All right. So what we're doing is we're hanging out, or as I call it, lawyering in Luke uh, for a few weeks here. So we've been in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, and I've been developing some different themes from week to week. Uh, on Wednesday night, I thought it would be interesting to uh, poke around a little bit at some different things in the Gospel of Luke. And I think tonight might be something that will be new to you. And um, it's just something for us to try out and try to get our arms around. You know, when bib biblical scholars uh, put their mind to trying to understand how the Gospels came together and what scheme or what plan of action some of these writers took in writing the Gospels, uh, there's theories. And so I'm going to present one primary theory tonight for you. And what's probably best for you, if it's within arm's reach, is for you to actually have two Bibles tonight, one in the Gospel of Luke and the other have it open to the book of Genesis. We're going to draw some parallels between, so you can keep your thumb in one and then be in the other. Or if you have two, just put them side by side because we're going to flip around a little bit tonight. So last week, we introduced some thoughts regarding uh, the Gospel of Luke, and we got about mm, halfway through some of the slides that I prepared for last week. And then tonight, what we're doing is we're taking a look at that material. So there's some duplication from last week's ha handout to tonight's handout that I emailed. And then there's some new slides as well. So I don't know if we'll get through all these slides or not, but it's a complete thought. So what we'll find is that these slides kind of all go together in tonight's handout. So what I want to do to begin is talk a little bit about how the texts of the Bible, Old and New Testament, are interlinked together. So a term that this is uh, that is used for this is called intertextuality. And what it is, is recognizing certain textual connections between the Old and the New Testament. And so if you're reading something in the Old Testament, there might be a story there that has certain words or images or phrases that are picked up later in the New Testament. And the key question, obviously, is why? Why does the author do that? I'll get to that in a little bit. But what we find is that some literature that comes later reflects literature that had come, in this case, decades and centuries before the writing of the Gospel of Luke. So what's important to keep in mind for us tonight is that the Gospel writers are not really writing literal history per se. They're writing a type of history that is causing those that are hearing the text to reflect back on other literature, other allusions, other quotations that had come earlier in the uh, scripture canon. So tonight, what we're going to find is that the Gospel of Luke actually draws upon a number of stories in the book of Genesis. And the key question I want you to kind of keep in the back of your mind is why is the writer doing this? So I'm going to give you a few examples, and then I'll show you an illustration with a story that comes from the book of 1 Kings 
and appears again in the book of Luke as an illustration. And then we'll come to this idea of how Luke is writing his gospel account. So here's this tapestry that he is writing concerning the life of Christ. And we said last week that the gospels differ. In some cases, they actually disagree on the same story or the same event. And the reason being is because of their purpose or their audience in which they are using the material in the way they are. So with that in mind, here's the example I want us to come to. So you're going to need to turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17 and the book of Luke chapter 7. So in 1 Kings chapter 17, there's this story that comes out of the uh, timeline of the prophet Elijah. And uh, we're going to look at a story that begins in verse 7 of chapter 17. And then in the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, this is the story that Luke records for us. And we will be able to see that there's this intertextuality between both stories, just by the way it's written and by the way it's connected. So the best thing that we can do first is to read the shortened story in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, down through 17. And here's what Luke the writer says. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up, and he began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So here is an episode out of the life of Jesus where he raises the son, the only son of this widow. Now we might think this is just pure history. But it is more than a historical event. It's actually an allusion back to 1 Kings chapter 17 by the way it's structured. So what you want to do is go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. So Elijah is at the focal point in this part of 1 Kings. And I'm going to read this and then just kind of point out some things by way of this chart. It says here, beginning in verse 7, Sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink. As she was going to get it, he called 
and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour had not been used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse, finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from his arms, uh, fr uh, took him from her arms, rather, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. And Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room in the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord uh, from your mouth is the truth. Now, at first glance, because there's extra details about this episode from First Kings, we might not associate it with the story that Luke is telling us. But if you look at it side by side, it's quite interesting, the parallels. So um, Elijah meets this woman at the gate. Jesus meets this widow at the gate of Nain. The son dies. The son dies. Jesus will feel compassion and touch the casket, and, or another word for it is the beer. And Elijah will feel compassion, and he will touch this dead boy as well. The uh, Lord gives a command for the boy to rise, and the Lord hears the cry of Elijah and raises the boy to new life as well. The boy is given back to his mother. Likewise, in 1 Kings 17, the boy is given back to his mother. And then the conclusion is God has come to help his people in Luke 7. And then the widow says, now I know you are a man of God. So there's these parallels. And it is most likely that Luke structures the story in such a way in the gospel of Luke chapter 7, so that it brings back to mind the story of the widow of Zarephath, who has been given back her son, just like this widow in name. The connections, intertextuality, is that Luke is building upon the many stories that are found in the Jewish scriptures, and he's structuring 
the uh, story in such a way that it brings it back to mind so that there might be continuity between Jesus and the prophets that had come before. So this is done every year at Passover time, where there is the reminder for this generation of what God did all the way back in the Exodus. Luke is doing a similar thing here. He is allowing his readers to see the interconnection between the God of the Old Testament and the God that is being revealed through Jesus. And the conclusion is the same. The bottom line, God has come to his people in the Old Testament story. Now I know you are a man of God. So if this story is told in Matthew or Mark or John, the details or at least the structuring of the story might be a little bit different because it is drawing upon things that are in the Old Testament for Luke. Remember, we looked at verses one through four of Luke one last week that it says he investigated everything thoroughly and he put it in an orderly manner. We said that the word that was used there in that first part of Luke is that he himself, even though he was a Gentile, was catechized. He was he went through a catechism. What is his catechism? It's the Jewish stories. And so he's going to incorporate these and interlock them with what is happening in the ministry of Jesus. So there's history here, but there's more than history here. There's a literature uh, interconnection. Does that make sense to everybody? Can I answer any questions? So this is brilliant. Uh, the gospel writers are phenomenal in the way they take the life of Jesus and connect it back into the Older Testament, thus connecting Jesus back to Judaism. Any thoughts, questions? I don't remember where it was, Larry, but Jesus um, restored a little girl's life, too, and they I think the wording was he gave her back to his parent, her parents. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. similar that, to this? Is that another it, one of these? It is, but I think it's as it, it's it's interesting. That's the example that you thought of, because we'll see. Uh, there is a story of uh, Jairus's daughter in that's Luke as well, who is raised to life, but it's interconnected. <clears throat> with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Yeah. Um, it's a paragraph within a paragraph. And uh, what we're going to find is that later in Luke, actually it's going to serve a purpose uh, that you'll see that it's, it's again relating back to the Old Testament in some ways as well. But uh, we'll get there in a little bit. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, you're exactly right. You're thinking about this woman uh, that, um, uh, or Jairus actually is a synagogue leader. So, uh, this is the daughter of this important individual in Judaism. Um, so there's a couple of episodes that are kind of the same in the ministry of Jesus. And if you look in Matthew and Mark, you'll find that some of them are repeated there, but again, they're not necessarily laid out exactly the same in the way that they're recorded. 
thank you. Mm -hmm. So another thing I find interesting is is Luke is a Gentile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet he's kind of like referring back to a, a Jewish um, story. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, he had access to Old Testament. I mean, what we would call the Old Testament. It, I, I just, I don't know. That just when you when you made this connection, I was thinking, wait a minute, Luke is Luke is Greek. Would he really, you know, be all that interested in in connecting the Jewish tradition to Jesus? I, mean, I, I, I think I think he is, and uh, and we'll see that in a few more apparently. slides. However, I don't know how long he was a proselyte to uh, Judaism. So we normally associate Luke with the companion of Paul in the book of Acts. However, uh, it is more than likely that he was a proselyte to Judaism, and he was an individual that probably went to synagogue on a regular basis and probably heard a lot of the stories within uh, the synagogue catechism that would be used from week to week and the different portions that would be read in in the public setting. So that's one possible way of his association to it. The other is going back to chapter one, verses one through four, where it says he did thorough research. And that idea is one of not only drawing upon his own knowledge base, but interviewing other people using the scrolls that were available to him. Uh, most scholars think that both Matthew and Luke draw heavily upon Mark's uh, gospel account, which is the earliest one. So there could be a whole variety of reasons why he would have this uh, knowledge that he could draw upon. So, so would he have been... Would he have been a follower of Jesus at the, I mean, you know, like when Jesus was on earth, would he have been someone who followed Jesus or? Well, I don't think we know. Um, okay. I, I think that he probably had some association uh, with the rest of the people who probably heard of Jesus, okay. um, that type of thing. Um, we just don't have enough information to know whether he had an up-close and personal encounter. From the way this book is introduced, it strikes me that his association with Jesus is secondhand, um, but, yeah. but we don't know. We don't know for sure. And then oh. Mark was more of a, um, he was, he was like the brother or a somehow related to peter i don't know if he is related per se but he's closely associated with peter and most scholars think that the gospel of mark is actually peter's reflections on okay. the life of jesus that marks okay. the author but it's it's peter's uh account basically okay any other anything else good questions Okay, so that brings us to this important point. 
if we come to the Gospels purely in terms of trying to say, well, how did it really happen? You're going to be disappointed. The Gospel writers are first storytellers more than they are historians. Remember that most of the Gospels are written anywhere between 25 to 50 years after the life of Jesus. So it's not like they have their steno notebook out and they're recording these things as Jesus is doing them. These are products of oral tradition, um, the stories that have been handed down from the early church. So the Gospels as storytelling is taking this collection of material and putting it together in an orderly way so that those who are being reached by the material uh, will get a better understanding of Jesus as a person and Jesus as son of God and the one who came to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. Now, don't let this little phrase here uh, upset you. The term that is often used technically for this gospel storytelling is mythic story. Okay, now we often think of myth as it didn't happen. That's not what this means. A mythic story is rather than something being put forth as if there was a camcorder recording. There is material that is used and and this intertextuality is used to draw upon illusions of previous material. So it's done in a variety of means here. So sometimes a text from the Old Testament can be adapted in some way. Sometimes it's just an allusion to a story. That's what I think this, this is here in the raising of the widow's son in Luke 7. It's an allusion back to the first Kings 17 story. Sometimes there's direct quotations, and then sometimes there's restructured quotations. In, in other words, the author will actually take the text and manipulate it in such a way that it, it, it achieves his purpose. So I'm going to give you an example of this. So this time you want to go over to Luke chapter 4, and then you want to keep your uh, thumb in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61. Now, I'm going to read the account out of Luke, and then I'm going to read just a couple of verses, verses 1 and 2 out of Isaiah 1 and 2, uh, out of chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and I want you to tell me what's missing, okay? So here we go. In Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, we're told in verse 14. And it says in verse 16, uh, he went to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and he stands up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, this could have been Jesus' request to read this portion of Isaiah, or it might have been a part of their lectionary system. This is what they read on that particular Sabbath. 
So anyways, he, here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20 says he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. He sits down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So there's the story. And there is the quotation out of Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. Now, I'm going to read it out of Isaiah 61, verses one and two. Now, I'm using the NIV translation, so it's the same translation, but here's the cross-reference. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Okay. As Luke records the reading of Jesus in the synagogue. What is left out as he uses Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2? I also read verse 3 of Isaiah 61. So that I read a little bit farther. But did you did you pick up on what's left out? Sounds Day of awesome. vengeance. There vengeance. you go. That's exactly yeah. right. So the day of vengeance is left out. So here it's verbatim, but when it gets to that line to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, it's cut short. And the key question is why? Okay, why would Jesus not read that? Or why would Luke not record that if he did read that? The answer to that is found basically in the way the rest of Luke 4 finishes. So he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22 of Luke 4, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Oh, that hey, good job, Jesus. But he's not finished. Jesus goes on and says this. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. That's alluding back to the Elijah story. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. 
Yet no one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And then all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, and they wanted to throw him off. Now, this is just the same crowd that was applauding him a moment ago. And the key is the omission of the day of vengeance of our God. What's going on here? Isn't that the second coming? What's that? Isn't that the second coming? No, no. In Isaiah, it's talking about the punishment upon Israel's enemies. The day Mm -hmm. of vengeance. So Luke, who is primarily reaching Gentiles, is seeing Jesus omitting this. Why? Because Jesus will tell us when we move through Luke that his message is not to hate or kill your enemies, but to what? Love your enemies. So he takes this allusion and partially direct quotation out of Isaiah 61, but Luke uses it in a different way to illustrate what is going to happen in the ministry of Jesus. And that's the inclusion of Gentiles in the grace of God. So in Isaiah, and rightfully so, Isaiah is talking about all the the power of these empires that have kept Israel uh, under its thumb and, and, and this idea of the coming day of vengeance is... God's going to deliver us. God's going to help us to overcome our enemies. But in their mind, the way you overcome your enemy is by killing your enemy. Okay, that's what we want God to do, not loving your enemy. So part of what is going to happen here is Jesus is going to flip the script. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, no day of vengeance. God's not coming to kill the Gentiles, no matter how much you want them to be killed. And when they hear this, and then he gives two examples, the widow of Zarephath, a foreign woman, and Naaman, the Syrian, a foreign man, who received the miracles of God in their own day and age, and they're Gentiles. They're not Jews. And when the crowd hears this, They want to kill Jesus. This is early on in Luke's gospel. This is only chapter four. The religious leaders aren't even involved in this plot yet, but the people now want to get rid of him because they don't agree with the way he's using their text and changing their text for a better uh, better vision for humanity. The bottom line here is the communicated message, you can see at the bottom of the slide, involves plans for change and reformation of society and structures and systems that are already in place. And so while they love the fact that they had in their mind when Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, they're going, great, God is coming to destroy our enemies. Because they have in their mind, the God of vengeance is coming. Do you see the connection here? So Jesus omits that. 
And then he gives two illustrations of Gentiles that receive miracles from God. And they're upset. What do they want? They want a God of vengeance. They want the God that will bring judgment and that will exterminate their enemies. This is not just Jesus doing this. This is Luke as well that is taking this text and using it in a way to set up what's still to come. Because right after uh, this story, in verse 31 of Luke 4, it's going to tell us that Jesus is going to exercise an evil spirit when he goes to Capernaum. And he in a synagogue, verse 33, there's a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. And, and this demon says, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Um, and then Jesus exercises this demon. The paragraphs are intentionally connected because the response in verses 28 through 30 is not just a historical note. It's that the people are being demonic in the way they are treating Jesus. They want to kill him because he wants to extend grace to Gentiles. Now that fits into Luke's overall structure of his gospel, because he's going to include Gentiles all along the way. Okay, let me stop there. Questions, comments? I have one. I was yeah. I was always thinking that meant um, that he was referencing the two prophets that didn't that reached beyond the Israelites, mm -hmm. and as as Jesus was going to with the Gentiles. That's correct. He is referencing both Elijah and Elisha, and but who is it that they reached out to? The enemy, Gentile. And the miracles that were done were done for the other. Does that yeah, make for sense? the other. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> other thoughts? Now you're beginning just to get a little bit of a, uh, a taste of how phenomenal these gospels are in the way they use the material and, and and how they're communicating a message, i.e. storytelling in such a way that it carries the work of Christ forward. Okay, now here's where we're going to be in the book of Genesis for a second. Okay, so you want to go with one Bible to Genesis and the other Bible you want to go to Luke chapter 1. Okay, now... This is not my theory, uh, but it is a theory of how Luke wrote his gospel, okay? And this comes from a man by the name of Bishop John Shelby Spong. He's no longer alive. He is an Episcopal uh, bishop uh, that, a brilliant man, brilliant professor. And he suggests that the way Luke organizes his gospel is to allude to things in the Torah. By Torah, we mean the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 
And he suggests that the way Luke structures this is by drawing upon not all the stories, but some of the stories in each of those books as he works his way through the material here. Now, this is something that requires a working knowledge of Torah and the Gospel of Luke, which most of us don't have. When we sit down and we read the Gospel of Luke, we just kind of go, okay, this is the story about Jesus and his ministry, and we just kind of use the Western mindset that we talked about last week a little bit. We just kind of run through it. Remember we said that there is a way of Jewish interpretation called Midrash. And Midrash is trying to understand what is tucked into the Old Testament stories and what is carried forward into our own day and age. So we might say, how do you take an ancient story and how do you make it relevant for a day and age that is thousands of years later and culturally quite different? So what we'll find is that there is a way that sometimes the writer uses um, references. And, and it's a way, in, in many respects, of keeping the current contemporary society connected to the old uh, material that came before. So let's take a look. Your eyes are probably going, I've never seen this before but it's had been there the whole time. So it appears in the birth narratives, Luke chapter one tells of the birth of John the Baptist and tells of the coming birth of Jesus. And what we find is that the book of Genesis parallels in many respects um, what is going on in Old Testament personalities in the life of Elizabeth and Mary. So the way Luke begins his gospel is he introduces us to a man named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. He's an old priest uh, and a barren wife. They had been trying to have children for many, many years, and Elizabeth was barren and was unable to get pregnant. What happens next is quite interesting. In many respects, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is following after the pattern of Abraham and Sarah. So you can look at some of the similarities here. So let me read Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 6 down to verse 11 to begin with. So it says here, uh, actually the context tells us in verse 5, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron, so both belonged to the priestly line. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot to, uh, uh, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And when the time for the burning of incense came, and all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. So let's stop there for a second. So if you go to Genesis chapter 26, that's where we'll begin to see the parallels here. So we're told of the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. And what we find is in the story here, chapter 26. Now, one of the things that you'll find is it these stories jump around a little bit, but it as a collection of stories out of Genesis, it follows this line. So in chapter 26, we are told here, um, uh, about uh, the the um, obedience of Abraham. He says, um, this is a part of the promise that God is going, uh, going to give to Abraham, which is, we call the Abrahamic covenant. It says in verse four, I will make your descendants, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands uh, through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So what we have here is Abraham is seen as a righteous man. We already saw in Luke 1, verse 6, that both uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are upright in the eyes of God. Next thing that we see, both Sarah, Abraham's wife Sarah, and Elizabeth are barren. We don't need to reference that by reading it, but we know that Sarah was unable to have a child. What we also note is that they are both well along in years. In verse 7 of Luke 1, it says Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. They're advanced in age. What we're told about Sarah and Abraham is the exact same thing back in chapter 18, verse 11. It says here, Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So the similarity is, if either of these women were to have a baby, it had to be God's intervention that did it. Now, it's also interesting, in both cases, there is an angelic uh, intervention that takes place. Um, so uh, this in chapter 18 of Genesis, is where Abraham is entertaining three guests that come into his tent. And one of those individuals says that Sarah is going to have a baby. And Sarah finds that so hilarious that she laughs. It says here in verse 11, Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she said, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Well, what is it that the Lord said? Verse 10, Genesis 18, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. And Sarah's listening in on this revelation, this annunciation of the these angelic visitors, and she laughs at it. Um, 
So in some ways here, there's an element of unbelief as well. In Luke chapter one, as you go down, it says, in, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he's never to take any wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And then down in verse 18, it says, Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So it's this, it's, it's very similar response going on here. How on earth is this going to happen? So both accounts are seeing kind of the same response. And then it's interesting that as the text goes on in Luke chapter one, the birth of Jesus is foretold. And, and of course, Mary in verse 34 has the same response. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Not that she's old. Uh, actually, she's, quite, she's probably quite young. And then the angel answers her that the Holy Spirit will come on you and so forth. But notice the response down in verse 37. Now, out of the words of Mary come, for nothing is impossible with God. Well, if you are still have your thumb there in uh, Genesis 18, uh, it says in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you see? That's the same thing. Is anything impossible with God? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at this appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. It seems as though Luke, in telling the story of John the Baptist, is intentionally using some of the same ideas, and even to a certain extent, some of the same language to tell the story of God's intervention to be a, that um, Elizabeth will be able to have a son, even like Sarah was able to have a son. Does that make sense? There's an intertextuality there. There's an interconnection that is going on, not by quotations, but by allusions. Does that make sense? Have I lost you? Okay, so here's, why would Luke do this? According to John uh, Shelby Spong, the reason Luke is doing this is telling the story of John the Baptist and Jesus in the same order, order of the Torah as it's being revealed. So here's his thought. When you move on, in the book of Genesis, what you're going to find is there is additional stories of Jewish origins. So Genesis then tells us about uh, a couple of unborn twins that are in the womb. So go over to Genesis chapter 25. In Genesis chapter 25, we find the story of 
Jacob and Esau. So here we find um, after Abraham dies, we're told a little bit in chapter 25 about Ishmael's sons. Of course, that's another part of the story. But then it tells us about Jacob and Esau. And uh, verse 19 says, this is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. So verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. There's that theme that comes up again. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. So Sarah was barren. Rebecca is, was barren. She becomes pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Okay, back to Luke. In Luke, what we're told is that there are two babies that are on the way, John the Baptist and Jesus. And the destiny of these two is reflected in the fact that the older will serve the younger. Who's the older? John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus but you remember on one occasion, John the Baptist said, I am not worthy even to tie his shoelaces, basically. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So you have uh, uh, destinies wrapped up in these two babies. And the destiny, like Jacob and Esau, evolves while they're still in the womb. So in Luke, what we find is that the the um the elizabeth does uh get pregnant and later in chapter one mary is going to visit elizabeth verse 39 at that time mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of judea where she entered zechariah's home and greeted elizabeth and when elizabeth heard mary's greeting the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 25, there's this activity of the twins that are jostling about within the womb of Rebecca. Here, by the voice of Mary, the baby in Elizabeth's womb begins to move about. Then Elizabeth says, Blessed are you to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So again, there's allusions to show the continuation of this story that began all the way back in the book of Genesis. These connections to Genesis continue in the early part of Luke. Um, we're told, and we won't look at all these, but in Genesis, we're told of the barrenness then of Rachel. Okay, so you have Sarah, 
you have Rebecca, and then you have Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Um, and what we find is that Jacob's other wife, Leah, is blessed with children. And one of the things that she says in Genesis chapter 29, verse 32, uh, it says here, uh, verse 31 says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. The Lord was intervening. Uh, and, and what we find is that now in her lowliness, she is being raised up. What we find here is Mary says something very similar. Down in verse 46 of Luke 1, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed. One of the things that will happen in verse 48 is Luke places uh, some of the very ideas that are recorded in Genesis um, into this song of Mary as well. So what's happening here? It seems as though one of the things that Luke is doing is saying that John the Baptist and Jesus are the new Jacob and Esau. And in a way, John the Baptist and Jesus is inaugurating a new Israel. So what we find is there's a setup here to those that are Torah observant Jews that it's okay to move beyond the Torah because what we have is through the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, the continuation of God's ongoing story in the life of Israel and beyond as well to the Gentiles. Okay, so there's these parallels that are going on and we don't see it in English. But there is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that's called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint uses a lot of the same words that are in the New Testament account in Luke as well. So that's how scholars begin to make these connections. And they go, this isn't random. This is done very intentionally. Does that make, does that make any sense to anybody? Any thoughts? Okay, so these illusions continue. So again, if you're keeping in mind the whole Genesis story, so then we come to Jacob's journey where he wrestles with God. It's fascinating in Genesis 32, verse 22, after he wrestles with God, he, he says, I have seen God and I'm still living. And then what's fascinating is in chapter 35 of Genesis, he's seen as going to Bethel and he's on the road in Genesis 35 with his expectant wife. He reaches his home, Bethel, Bethlehem, 
where Rachel's child, Benjamin, is born. And you find that in Genesis 35, 16 through 21. Well, if in knowing the birth narrative out of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, we find a similar journey taking place. What we find is in chapter 2, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Well, was that going to force Mary and Joseph, who live up in Galilee, to do? They've got to travel a long distance down to their uh, their their uh, town uh, of ancestry, and they come to Bethlehem. And what they do is they are traveling like Rachel did in uh, chapter 35. They get to Bethlehem, and we all know the story of um, uh, the birth of Jesus in a manger. The angels are coming uh, to proclaim to the shepherds that there has been one who is a savior, the Christ who has been born. And though they, so they take off to visit and and worship. And uh, so what's happening is interesting here that um, by the time you get to the end, almost the end of chapter two, uh, the time has come uh, where Jesus is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. And in verse 21 and following, we're told of his him being in the temple where he's going to be circumcised. And there's an individual there by the name of Simeon, who's also considered righteous and devout. But what's fascinating, it says he had been waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And um, he then um, was was told or given a premonition or given some type of aud audible reassurance that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And then it said in verse 27, moved by the spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him as the custom of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you can now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people, and like for the revelation of the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. In both cases, Jacob says that he saw God and he lived. And here, Simeon very similarly is saying, I saw God. I, my eyes have seen salvation. And now he says, it's okay if I die, because I have seen um, the one that was to come, the one that was promised. So um, I, there's just a lot of similar ideas in the way that Luke is telling the story about the birth of Jesus. Thoughts? Again, each storyteller, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, use their own way of telling the story. That's why some eliminate some things, and Luke includes a lot that's not found in the other three Gospels. So they're, they're using their material very intentionally. And I just... 
yeah. I just kind of have a comment. It's it just I I I have never noticed these correlations before. This is amazing. I'll tell you honestly, until you until you get outside of kind of the bubble that evangelical Christianity lives in and Western Christianity lives in, we think this is just a historical account. No, it's more than that. It really is a lot more than that. And until you get exposed to that, you just never see it. It's kind of like your eyes don't aren't able to see it. But once you begin to see the connections, you go, oh my gosh, how did I not see some of these ideas before? And it's just a matter of, it takes people that have a great working knowledge of the entirety of the text, not just the gospel of Luke. So we're dependent upon people that are quite talented to be able to see a lot of this. Okay, one more. And we'll close with this and then we'll pick up from here. So why these parallels? If these parallels are genuinely there, why is Luke writing in this way? And we're not done yet because I'm going to show you some more. It goes all the way, not just through Genesis. It goes all the way through Deuteronomy. What's found in Luke here. It seems to me that the reading of the gospel in the Christian assembly after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is connected in such a way to show the honor of the Torah. Where did Christians first start to meet after the resurrection of Jesus? Synagogues. Synagogues. And until house churches started to develop, what is it that they're doing? They're going to start making connections between the Torah of the Old Testament and the gospel story. So we might put it like this. It's possible that Luke is consciously writing a Christian Torah uh, to either replace or supplement the Pentateuch. Replace probably isn't a good word. Um, to supplement and to um, maybe uh, fulfill a lot of the expectations of the Torah. And it's quite possible that a lot of what is found in the Gospel of Luke in his research originated in these early Christian assemblies that were influenced by Torah and Old Testament stories and actually, many of the stories here might have been summarized from a lot of the sermons or homilies that were preached in those initial assemblies in the synagogue first and then later in some of the house churches. So that's what we saw in Luke chapter 4 when I showed you the relationship between Luke 4 and Isaiah 61. Um, there was a story or a scripture that was read, as was the custom, we're told. And this on this occasion, Jesus was the one that got up, and he was the one that read out of Isaiah 61. But he stopped short, as we said earlier, of reading the day of vengeance, because in the mind of the Jews, the day of vengeance 
is the extermination of enemies. So I don't think there's any accidents that are going on in the way the Gospels reflect back on what has come before. So let me stop with that slide, and I'm going to stop the share and get us all on the same screen here. Um, do you have some questions, comments um, that you'd like to continue for the next couple of minutes before we sign off? One thing that I kind of um, think about when when we go through this is, is Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law but but, the, but to fulfill it mm -hmm. and it's almost like luke is trying to show you like a pattern of things that he is kind of like it not necessarily you know this stuff isn't the law and i, and I think you're probably going to get into it in in subsequent weeks since you say that it it goes into the pentateuchs mm -hmm. the the other part of the pentateuch um it, it it's just this is just amazing to me yeah no i think uh, in in a very real way luke is tangibly showing us that jesus is fulfilling the law he's not replacing it mm -hmm. that's why i said that was a poor choice of words on the previous slide but um it definitely is supplementing it for sure other other questions comments thoughts So we can loiter in Luke like this uh, as long as you want. Uh, but I mean, these are things that, you know, when you're reading through the Gospels, you just don't usually make the connections. And I just want you to make be more aware that these books are are fabulous and they're they just do such a wonderful job of connecting with what has come before. So. So how did you find these connections? Research and reading. Okay. And, um, <laughs> okay. Um, so I went through eight years of schooling uh, <laughs> from Bible school through seminary. And this was never, ever, ever brought up through my whole education. Hmm because of the mentality of the way we think about gospels so again it comes back to a western mentality and that is we think of this as history it's more than it's historical but it's not straight history it's more than that so when you start to read other things uh that you didn't read in your initial schooling and this can be true in any field whatsoever you you you're given a certain curriculum and a, a professor can't cover everything i mean you'd be in school for 65 years if you tried to cover everything so there is a selection usually by professors of materials that they're most comfortable with or whatever and that's what they assign to students. Sometimes it's mm, just because, you know, a student can't buy every book and read every book. Sometimes it's intentional, though. 
And sometimes what happens is professors are required by their school to keep the system intact. Don't think outside of this box. And what you're going to find is somebody like John uh, Shelby Spong, um, an Episcopal uh, bishop, he will he will question certain things uh, that would probably not be accepted within evangelical seminaries. So he's kind of put on the no read list because <laughs> after all, we're protecting we're protecting our students. That's kind of the idea behind it. No, you're just sheltering your students from thinking. And um, and so that's true in any field is, you know, trying to maintain this is this is just bubble stuff. A lot of times it's around us all the time. If you only watch Fox News, you're in a certain bubble. If you only watch CNN, you're in a certain bubble. And yeah. and you do, and you don't get material from that crosses over and says, OK, there's elements on each side here. What, you know, how do we handle this type of thing? That's, you know, that's true in theology. Uh, it's true in religion. So when you free yourself enough to say, I'm, I don't need to protect a system. I don't need to protect a system. Let's just engage with the material. It's very freeing because then you can see things maybe that we should have seen a long time ago, but either by intention or just by omission, we, you know, we don't see it. We're kind of blind to it. So. I you love might professors. Be no I love professors, Kay. <laughs> and Bud. And Bud. Um, and <laughs> we I can't love help ourselves from, We can't yeah. help ourselves from researching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but we never stop learning, do we? No, no. no. So that, it's that's kind of... because uh, um, I was always, I always saw these passages as Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophets and the scriptures. So mm -hmm. it, it didn't have a, a dichotomy for me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good way of summarizing our night is that it is really fulfilling in Jesus and in John the Baptist, what was seen early on in what God started through the nation of Israel. But now, and I think this is going to be the main point, Luke is expanding that beyond Israel to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we've used enough brain cells tonight. How's that sound? <laughs> so, all right. You have a good night. We'll pick up here Thank next you. week. Thanks, Thank Larry. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.